Hello, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Thursday, March 2nd. Amanda Borchel Dan here, joined by our Zman Yisrael editor, Birgit Gorin, and Knesset correspondent, Kerry Keller-Lynn. Hello to you both. Hi. Hi, Amanda. Yesterday's widespread day of disruption saw anti-judicial overhaul protesters stop traffic at strategic junctions to slow down the nation. The reprisal in Tel Aviv was shocking to many, and Kerry was there. Bira will expand on why, despite the increasingly popular protest movement, this judicial overhaul will likely move full steam ahead. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. And we're back. There are images that are indelibly etched into Israeli collective memory. And I would bet that yesterday's protest in Tel Aviv may be one of them. Tell us what you saw, Carrie. Well, what I saw yesterday was really a step up um, in activity, both from the protesters and in police response to them. Uh, This was the first time that protesters had a a coordinated uh, sweep really across all of Israel to stop traffic to stop major highways, stop trains, uh, to really interfere with Israeli daily life and to to make it feel like they couldn't be ignored. And consequently, the police used mounted officers against them, used stun grenades. There were water cannons, which are not very pleasant, right? It's, it's a really stinky, disgusting kind of substance that's ejected from them. These are really considered extreme measures uh, to be used by the police against Israel's civilian population. There's some criticism that perhaps this happened because police commissioner Kobe Shabtai felt the need to bend uh, to our national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, who has been calling these um, anti-judicial reform protesters uh, anarchists. Of course, these protests were mostly nonviolent. There were incidents where the police say that they were struck. There were 11 injuries on side of the protesters, including hospitalization, and a man partially lost his ear when he was struck by a stun grenade. I was there for, for most of the protests, and I have to say, Amanda, it was incredibly tense. That was what was repeated to me over and over again. Uh, protesters didn't express antipathy towards the police. Uh, Some actually expressed a lot of empathy, uh, given the tense situation, but felt the need to be there, felt the need to make their voices heard. And really, uh, sometimes that did boil over into frustration that 
that very much, I think, uh, was threatening police officers breaking through barricades. Uh, people came to blows. There were incidents of police officers kneeling on the necks of protesters. It was, it was just a lot of chaos, uh, a lot of really heightened emotions, a lot of tension. And uh, again, I, I don't think I'll quickly forget the feeling of when a stun grenade uh, lands near you, the, the vibration you feel all the way through your chest. It's it's really stressful. It creates a lot of tension. And I think people people definitely felt it on the streets yesterday. And there was a lot of uh, frustration across the country, uh, both people who support these protests and people who do not, over how the protests were conducted and the response to them. Right, Bira, the protesters are in some ways using a different playbook than we've seen in previous Israeli protest movements, including what we can perhaps maybe even flippantly call last night's siege on Sarah Netanyahu's hairstylist. Tell us about what happened there. Well, I think, I mean, if you look worldwide, not just in Israel, there's always this watershed moment where protests and pushbacks from citizens becomes more serious. It, it takes, you know, it takes the step further from just being rallies and colorful signage and everything. And I think for a lot of us, the feeling is that yesterday was that watershed moment in this uh, protest against the um, judicial overhaul. And in some way, what happened in the evening was such so symbolic. It, 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 I'm sure it will become one of the most memorable uh, evenings in Israeli history. Uh, Sarah Netanyahu went to visit her hairdresser um, in a place that we call Kikara Medina, the, the, the state square. Now, for, for somebody who doesn't live here, just to explain what that means, it's like me saying Rodeo Drive. It's, it's a symbol. More than anything, Kikara Medina is a symbol of the rich and, uh, and you know, the, the disconnected, if you will, so Sarah Netanyahu, who has a house in, in Kesaria and a home in Jerusalem, elects to go to her hairdresser on a day like this in Tel Aviv at the most, you know, symbolic places of all, Kikara Medina. And as soon as people heard that she was there, people started taking to the street. Initially, maybe five people were in front of the uh the hair salon, and then suddenly it was 500 people, and by the end of the evening, it was something like near 5,000. And they were chanting, shame, shame. I mean, anybody who's seen um, uh, Game of Thrones will remember this, this scene. They were chanting democracy. And in a way, th there was a sense that, you know, I have to say, there was a lot of funny things about it. She had a chance to leave. The police were making a, a way for her to leave, but she refused to leave because she was still having her hair done. So, you know, and, and then there was interviews with the, with the, with a hairstylist who was saying, I was really afraid, but Sarah hugged me and said everything will be okay. So the whole thing took like a surrealist and really absurdist um, way of looking at it. And obviously then when she came back home, Netanyahu put a picture up of him hugging his wife and saying, I'm so happy she came back home safely. And it was all painted as if this was, you know, a siege uh, uh, or something uh, along the lines of Ceausescu's being dragged on the street. It wasn't, but it did have a, a, it did have a meaning because it said the protesters are ready to fight for this country and are ready to take it to the source. Because, uh, you know, when you when you um, when you protest on the streets of Tel Aviv, Netanyahu sits in Jerusalem and and he doesn't care. He really doesn't care about the protests. 
So to a large extent, this was like, you know, protesting in front of somebody's house, you know, just taking it literally to the source of it. And we've always said families shouldn't be involved. The problem is that with this specific family for 30 years, they've been involved in our lives. So I I didn't feel it was unfair to protest against her as well. Um, but the bottom line of it is it was, it was really more than anything, just a symbolic evening and symbolic uh, images that I think will be etched in our memories and part of our history forever. Thanks, Pera. While the impact of Israel's domestic instability has already reached the financial markets, yesterday, the Fitch ratings affirmed Israel's A-plus credit rating with a stable outlook. At the same time, it warned that the government's planned judicial changes could have a, quote, negative impact on the country's future credit profile. Now, I understand, Carrie, that a group of economists wrote another open letter this morning. Who was signed on? Um, some of the very senior economists, uh, former governors of Bank of Israel, um, senior economists that were appointed by Netanyahu. And what they basically said was, all well and good that, you know, we we currently have a, a comfortable situation. But what our economic research has taught us is that trends like these will have impact over a long period of time. And more than that, uh, that there are indications that there's current capital flight from Israel, that people are moving their money from Israel. It's not just uh, the few large tech firms that say that they're not going to bring money in or they're going to take money out of Israel. It's really, it's it's larger than that. And that specifically, this is driving Israel's inflation rate. Um, and that part of the expense that we're seeing now could be possibly tied to this capital flight from Israel. And basically warned, don't say, uh, they didn't say this explicitly, but, but don't look at the credit rating as uh, a sign that everything is okay. This is still very much in play. Okay, thank you, Carrie. We'll go to a short break. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we're back. Bira, in the past day, we've heard a lot of speechifying from President Herzog, Justice Minister Yariv Levine, National Unity Head Benny Gantz, and of course, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu last night on Primetime News. What conclusions can be drawn after hearing all of these voices? Well, the, the, the afternoon began with uh, Benny Gantz announcing that he just called uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and President Herzog and said that 
he's willing to come and, and you know that evening let's let's just sit down and talk and get all this craziness uh, over with uh, and there was and then Netanyahu announced that he was going to make a speech in the evening so we were all thinking there were I don't I don't want to say raising our hopes high because I don't know everybody has different hopes here but we were all anticipating something will be announced something will happen and in between Gantz's phone call and Netanyahu saying that he's going to make a speech Herzog was slated to make a speech uh, in a ceremony for the Navy. So between those three points, Gans, Herzog's speech, and then Netanyahu, we were expecting something to come up. In reality, what happened was that, um, I'll go back to Herzog in a second, but Netanyahu gave one of his probably most surprising speeches, I would say, even with the record that he has, it was a complete falsification of facts and history. It was very anti uh, the protests. And, and that was even before the Sarah Netanyahu hairstylist uh, siege. Um, he, he claimed, uh, things that never happened. He, he claimed that he was head of opposition, um, when the disengagement happened. That wasn't true. He actually voted for the disengagement. So it was all almost like a dog whistle for his base. He wasn't there to, uh, alleviate anybody's fear. He wasn't there to, to make peace with anybody. He was there to alleviate his base more than anything else. Um, I do want to get back to Herzog's speech because I do think it was one of the best speeches he has given since he went into office and certainly since this whole, um, since this whole mess, uh, with the judicial overhaul begun. I just want to quote one bit of it, if I will, if I can. He said, I wholeheartedly believe this moment of crisis can be turned into a defining constitutional moment in time, a moment that will allow us to bolster our democracy for generations to come. I believe we can turn the ground that currently burns under our feet to a fertile ground for agreements that will give the state of Israel stability for years and years and will deeply reflect the democratic and Jewish principles of our state as they clearly and compellingly are spelled out in the Declaration of Independence. Now, the reason I I, I quote this is because this is the, the crux of the matter. Because if you ask everybody that is currently protesting, will you agree to turn the Declaration of Independence into the Constitution of the State of Israel? They will say absolutely yes. It is a declaration that promises human rights, promises equality, promises respect for all religions. This is what we want. And actually, the entire judicial overhaul goes against that. It, it goes against everything that is written in this in this sentence. So for Herzog to come and say this is actually probably the first time he's siding very clearly against the judicial overhaul. He's already, in a way, expressed worries about it, but now he's already also stating where he stands. And that's important because a lot of people were really worried that Herzog will, in a way give legitimization for the judicial overhaul just because he will want to somehow finish this controversy. Now, I think after all that was said and done, the last word belongs to the person that actually began the judicial overhaul, and that's um, Justice Minister Yariv Levin. After all that was said and done, he stated last night, we are not stopping this judicial overhaul. We are not stopping legislation. I'm all for talking, but we will talk while we are doing this. And he gave a deadline. He said, this 
will end at the end of this current Knesset session, which is by the end of this month of March. So he's not stopping. He's, gave, he's given us a notice. This will pass. Those laws will pass by the end of this month. So when I said yesterday was a watershed day for uh, the protest, it was also a watershed day for the entire uh, judicial overhaul. And I think, I'm pretty sure, yesterday was the beginning of the end. Kerry, before we end, uh, tell us where does the judicial overhaul stand right now? So we have a number of uh, measures currently in the legislative hopper. Um, most of them focused on weakening the judiciary and specifically the Supreme Court's powers uh, to give oversight to review the Knesset and its decisions. Um, a number of them focus on transferring judicial appointments fully into political control. Uh, another measure that was passed its preliminary reading is to give um, preemptive immunity to legislation, whereby the Knesset can basically insert a clause into any regular law drafts and say that the court can't touch it for a specific period of time, which is later extendable, quote, indefinitely. Um, if the court um, actually could review a law, it needs to now have 12 out of its 15 justices agree in order to strike down a law or a piece of it. Um, it's not even allowed to review basic laws at all, which are those quasi-constitutional laws, much of the subject of debate right now, that, uh, may I remind you, have a very low threshold for passing. Most of them can pass with only a simple majority of votes. And, and in fact, most of these uh, judicial changes are actually amendments to basic laws. So it means that the court would be unable to review them as well. Another thing that happened yesterday in the Knesset is a, a preliminary reading on a bill that would protect Prime Minister Netanyahu from being forced to take a leave of absence uh, connected to his conflict of interest agreement, uh, given that he's currently under uh, three uh, corruption cases and on trial for them. Um, and he is barred from touching anything that has to do with the judicial system. Um, and another uh, bill that is in process would block the court from uh, expressing any sort of view over ministerial appointments, meaning that uh, Arya Derry, the Shas leader and senior Netanyahu ally, who was knocked out of the cabinet uh, given his financial crimes, the court found his appointment to oversee two of Israel's largest budgets um, unreasonable and extreme. That could be smoothed back because the court would lose the power to have any sort of discretionary oversight over Israel's uh, ministers. And so those are just the main proposals that are currently in the works, meaning that at least one sort of reading has passed on the Knesset floor. And these are the main proposals that uh, Levin hopes to finish by his timeline in a little less than a month. For those of you who are interested in hearing more about why Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu probably will not stop this judicial process, please check out our What Matters Now that will be released tomorrow in which Khaviv Retegur speaks to this issue as well. Kerry, Bira, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next time. Shalom. Shalom.